As I produce this episode, there's a dangerous new vulnerability known informally as Log4Shell. It's a flaw in the open source Java logging library developed by the Apache Foundation and, in the hands of a malicious actor, could allow for remote code injection. The flaw was discovered and first reported directly to the administrators of Log4J, who then proceeded to patch it. The trouble is, details of this leaked prematurely. Log4j, a widely used open source tool, is used in many applications or is present with dependencies in enterprise applications as well as numerous cloud services, all of which makes updating all the possible uses for it very hard, even if coordinated in advance. So, it's a race against time to patch every affected system before the bad actors find their way to exploit it for their own purposes. In some ways, it's very similar to other high-profile vulnerabilities such as Heartbleed and Shellshock, and we'll be likely hearing about Log4Shell exploits in vulnerable products for the near future. The solution is to patch Log4J immediately with the latest update. And while you're at it, maybe you should look at updating all your open source software as well. While this episode of The Hacker Mind isn't specifically about Log4Shell, it is about finding flaws in open source tools that are perhaps more ubiquitous than most of us even realize. It's about a researcher and his fuzzer and a mission to recreate a known vulnerability in the MQTT protocol used in IoT. And what resulted was him finding several vulnerabilities in other related open source projects. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about fuzzing Erlang, a programming language developed over 35 years ago as a fast network system for communications for the company Ericsson, and how brokers associated with it, such as RabbitMQ, have some vulnerabilities, and how those vulnerabilities couldn't have been found unless somebody started looking for them. The idea behind open source is great. Why code something that has already been coded? As a developer, you can go to GitHub and read the license agreement and then add the code to your next build. The problem comes with updating all of that code over time. The longer you go without updates, the more likely someone has found the vulnerability, either reported it or not. And then there's the additional problem of maintaining all of that. Someone acting as the administrator for the open source has to update it. And then there's the researchers, the ones that come along and find things. So my name is Jonathan Knutson, and I am a security researcher at Synopsys. Jonathan is one of the good guys. Before working at Synopsys, he worked at Codenomicon, the company that found Heartbleed back in the day. So, as a researcher, Jonathan is used to finding vulnerabilities. And for that, he uses a technique known as fuzz testing. So, in a nutshell, fuzzing is delivering badly formed or unexpected inputs to software, to any piece of software, and looking to see if something fails, looking to see if something breaks. If you think about normal software testing, 
you give an, a reasonable, a valid input to a piece of software, and then you check and see if the right thing happened. So you're testing for functionality. Uh, if I push the button, does the light come on? If I give it a name, does it give me the right output? Uh, and fuzzing inverts that. So it's um, let's give the software badly formed or invalid inputs, essentially garbage or, or noise. Um, and let's see if the software is able to handle that or if it fails in some way. And if it fails in some way, then uh, you know you found some kind of a bug. And um, from an attacker viewpoint, maybe it could be exploited. From a defense viewpoint, you found a bug and now you can fix it. So fuzzing injects malformed data and then monitors it as a result. One could argue that what it really comes down to is proper error code handling within the target software. We spend a lot of time testing for how a software should work, for its performance, for its reliability. Perhaps, though, we should spend equal, if not more, time testing on how the software handles that unexpected input. Absolutely. So a lot of it has to do with uh, just how programmers naturally work, which is um, they're trying to build something that functions. It, they have a list of things that it needs to do, and they try to write code to meet each of the things on that list. Um, but along the way, they tend to make assumptions like, oh, I assume that the user is going to do something that makes sense, or I assume that this other system I'm talking to is going to give me correctly formed messages or, or, or messages in the right order or messages that make sense at all. And so it's easy to make those assumptions. And if you are just doing normal functional software testing, you're also looking at sort of the happy path. So you're looking at, uh, you know, if we give it this good input, does it do the right thing with it? Which is exactly how the programmer programmed it in the first place. And so even if you get all of those things to pass, um, you put this thing out in the real world and, and strange stuff happens and it, it likely will fail for you. So fuzzing is a way uh, during software development where you sort of proactively uh, give it stuff that's hard to deal with. And then if it breaks, you can fix it. And it, it's more robust and more secure by the time you actually release it. Fuzz testing is a very powerful tool. Even the bad actors have started to use the open source versions of fuzzing. Jonathan uses a commercial fuzzer that fuzzes protocols. And as a researcher, he can aim that fuzzer at any protocol target he chooses. That was my dream to fuzz Bitcoin a little bit. So Bitcoin has its own network protocol. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be like the ultimate attack, right? Because it's this big peer-to-peer -peer network and they're all talking to each other with the Bitcoin protocol. So if you could get a remote code execution exploit, uh, you could just spread throughout the entire network almost instantaneously. <laughs> but it didn't work out. I, I mean, I think it could have, like part, part of the challenge was just modeling the protocol and it, it's a pretty complicated protocol. And I, you know, I just wanted to write an article about it. Perhaps to better understand this episode, it's important that we agree on the use of the word broker. A broker simply is someone or something that negotiates between two parties. So in stock, you can hire a broker who acts on your behalf to buy and sell stocks in your best interests. 
In software security, a broker is something that gathers and reports information. So I describe a message broker as Slack for robots. It's essentially, um, it's a piece of software that supports publishers and subscribers. And uh, it contains internally a, a list of message queues, which are kind of like channels in Slack. And so um, you would use it in a, a large software system consisting of many components, and it would enable them to talk to each other in a orderly and reliable way. So uh, a publisher would be a piece of software that had some data it wanted other people to know about other processes and so it could publish messages into a, the message broker and then subscribers could pull them out um, as needed. Given that, how would you use a broker? Let's say you want to control data feeds. For example, the number of registrations in any given system. So one example that is easy to understand would be, let's say you're a power company and you've got um, 10,000 smart meters on people's houses out in the field. Um, you could imagine all of those being uh, publishers and, and talking to a message broker and, and saying, oh, this house used this much uh, electricity. And then uh, in the offices of the power company, they could have subscribers that are picking up those messages from the message queues and doing whatever they do with them. I don't know exactly where message brokers are used uh, in detail, but they seem pretty important, and and you can see in your head that it's sort of like a central nervous system of, of a large uh, system. Jonathan was looking at Mosquito, a lightweight open source message broker written in C that implements the MQTT protocol. In particular, Jonathan wanted to see if he could find a known vulnerability in Mosquito with a new feature in his fuzzing solution. Well, kind of the way I arrived here was was interesting. So a year or two ago, our fuzzer got a it's got what's called an agent instrumentation framework. Uh, so, so I have to explain a couple of things about that first. So, instrumentation is uh, after you've delivered a bad input to the software, how do you know if something went wrong? So, instrumentation is how uh, what we call that. Uh, and in that context, it means oh, you're looking to see if uh, a process crashed or um, or you got a kernel panic or all the memory filled up or you know any of the things that can go wrong with software, you have to decide how, what you're gonna check for and how you're gonna check for it when you're fuzzing. To find memory leakage, you'll wanna use what's known as an address sanitizer or ASAN. It's an open source programming tool that detects memory corruption bugs such as dangling pointers or buffer overflows. So, we had a new feature in the agent instrumentation where it would use address sanitizer as a way of looking for memory leaks. So address sanitizer, or ASAN, you can, you can build a piece of software with address sanitizer enabled. And then when you run it, if that uh, piece of software handles memory badly, it'll tell you about it. So we had this part that would work with address sanitizer to find out about bad things happening with memory. And I kind of wanted to see how it worked. And I had heard that uh, somebody used this feature to find a bug in Mosquito. So Jonathan wanted to see if he could find a known vulnerability in Mosquito. But right away, he ran into a few challenges. The steps I needed to do were um, get the old version of Mosquito source code, build it with address sanitizer enabled, run it, and reproduce this bug. And at the time, I was working with, with containers as a way of 
making a, a reliable way of reproducing software environments and, and getting things to work. So I made a container that got the source code for Mosquito and, and built it and so on and so forth and ran it. So that all happened. And I was able to reproduce this 2017 bug in, in Mosquito. And I wrote an article about it. And, and that was fine. Containers are a standard unit of software that packages code and all its dependencies so the application runs quickly and reliably from one computing environment to another. And then after that, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool how I was able to use a container to hold my test target, Mosquito, uh, for two reasons. Uh, the one reason was it, it's very reproducible. So once you get your Docker container set up the right way, uh, you, can, you can just build it and it happens the same way every time. And uh, you know all those steps that you had to do to get the source code and configure it and build it with address sanitizer and all that stuff, it's all encapsulated in a Docker file. So it, it, it's really easy to reproduce. A Docker container, then, is an image that is a lightweight, standalone, executable package of software that includes everything needed to run the application, including code, runtime, system tools, system libraries, and settings. And the other thing was, that was cool was that containers are so much lighter than virtual machines. Virtual machines are just that. They're software representations of hardware machines. They contain an operating system, and they have configuration for RAM and other virtual hardware that you may want to simulate. This is how malware, for example, gets analyzed in a lab. If a virtual machine gets infected and crashes, the physical machine isn't impacted. And in fact, you can just spin up another VM. Normally, I would use a virtual machine for this. and I'd go install Linux and install the other stuff and work away at the command line until I got it where I wanted it to be. But then... If something got messed up and I wanted to start over from the beginning, it was a, a slow process. So containers really helped with that as well. So that's a problem. With an OS and all the hardware requirements, a VM can be slow to spin up, and it can tax your physical system if you're running more than one VM. Under normal circumstances, like if you just write an application in C, uh, it gets compiled to processor instructions, machine instructions, and there's an operating system that knows how to run your program. And uh, it's just running instructions directly on the processor. It's, I, I would say it's closer to the metal. Um, with a virtual machine, uh, it's sort of a, a made up processor that runs in software above the real processor. And so uh, for example, in Java, you write Java source code, you compile it, it ends up as Java bytecode, which is essentially machine instructions for the made-up processor of the Java virtual machine. So it, it, it's just like an extra layer. So the solution is to run a container. Based off of that, I thought to myself, well, um, may, uh, so I reproduced this bug, and then I did more fuzzing on Mosquito just to see if I could find any bugs, and I, I couldn't. And then I thought, well, there are other message brokers out there. Why don't I go try some of those and see what happens? So that's how this started. Given his success with Mosquito, Jonathan wanted to start looking at other message brokers. So I went to GitHub. I looked for um, message brokers, uh, picked the ones with the most stars or the most forks, and, and um, got those running in containers in the same way. So I was uh, focusing on MQTT as a network protocol. 
um, I guess it's, I don't know how long it's been around, but I, I think it's been a while. But then uh, I think the, the most popular message broker on GitHub is RabbitMQ. I don't know, maybe it needs a plugin for MQTT or something, but it, anyway, it seems to do another protocol called AMQP uh, better or more natively. I, I think there's a plugin for it that I had to enable, but so that was the other protocol that I found. Using the GitHub containers that are already created, that saved him time and effort. So Jonathan's now got his fuzzing tool up and running, but wait, something still wasn't right. Somewhere along the way, I was getting failures, but uh, it was kind of it was kind of slow. But they were out of memory failures, so I would do some fuzzing, and uh, somehow the message broker would get into a state where it would gobble up all of the memory on my laptop, and then it would swap the disk for a while and thrash around for a while, and eventually the operating system would kill it because it was using too much memory. And then I realized that. Since they're already running in containers, I can just constrain the memory on the container. So I can just say, okay, you get a half a gig and no swap space. So once it uses up all the memory, it just fails immediately. And that's essentially what happened um, with all three of these message brokers. Maybe just using containers from GitHub wasn't that easy. So. Jonathan returned to tinkering and hacking those message brokers. The, the hardest part really was um, getting these things running. So uh, I, I did a combination of things with the containerization. So in some cases I would just go and uh, some of these projects have like official container images up on Docker Hub. So that makes it really easy to just go grab that and run it. Uh, some of them I wanted to build from source. It was because with MQ with Mosquito, I wanted to include address sanitizer, and in order to do that, you have to rebuild the software uh, with the the flag for address sanitizer or whatever, because it inserts some extra stuff in there. And so, my original plan was I was going to do exactly that same thing with these other message brokers, but um, it turns out that all three of the message brokers I I broke, uh, RabbitMQ. EMQX and VernMQ, they're all implemented in Erlang. And I'd never really heard of Erlang before. I thought, well, that's fine, you know, whatever it is, I can insert address sanitizer into it, and boy, was I wrong. Erlang is a programming language that was used by Ericsson and others to build a massively scalable, soft, real-time systems with requirements on high availability. Some of its uses included telecom, banking, e-commerce, and computer telephony, and instant messaging. Erlang's runtime system, first built in 1986, has built-in support for concurrency, distribution, and fault tolerance. Erlang is just outrageously old. I had never heard of it. It's one of those things about uh, computing that you know, I've been around a while and I think I know a lot of stuff and, and, and it's like this whole universe that I just didn't know exist. And it's, um, it's specifically designed for like high availability, robust servers, services. Um, and so it, I think it makes, well, obviously it makes sense for message brokers, uh, but it, it's got a VM architecture like Java does. So you know, there's your application and there's some VM and then there's the OS below that. There are some mistakes you can't make in Erlang. 
Um, so uh, everyone knows C is dangerous, right? You, you've got pointers, you've got the buffer overruns and all this stuff. And uh, so some environments, uh, you know, like there's some mistakes you can't make in Java. You can't have a stack buffer overrun. What Jonathan's talking about is that there are memory safe languages such as Java versus non-memory safe languages such as C. And what that means is that the language will stop you from putting in something that might corrupt the memory. So it's considered safe. I mean, I'm putting it in air quotes, which you can't see in the podcast, uh, because it, it, you know, it's not really that safe. Um, so uh, everyone knows and see that it's trivial to write code that uh, uh, writes past the end of the buffer, or you're reading or you're writing memory that doesn't belong to you. Uh, in a, an environment like Java, you can't do that. So if you write past the end of a buffer, you uh, the runtime system gives you a index out of bounds exception instead. And so you can't, um, you can't have a buffer overrun, which means uh, unless the Java system itself has a bug, uh, you can't exploit a Java application to do a, an exploit the way you would with a C application. And Erlang also has a virtual machine architecture. And so it, it's, it's sort of got this extra layer of insulation um, between bad things happening in, in the application and uh, actually enabling an attacker to run arbitrary code on, on the base OS. But Erlang was far from perfect as far as languages go. But one of the things you can do is eat up all your available memory. Uh, and so uh, for these message brokers, it, um, running in containers made sense because I could constrain the memory and really highlight when they ran out of memory. Which is why he wanted to put in some address sanitizers. Address sanitizer is really designed to go into a C application. So you can compile it in uh, when you're building a C application. And so I think it might theoretically be possible to build the Erlang VM with address sanitizer enabled. But anyway, I, I got nowhere with it. I was able to build some of these from source, uh, even as Erlang applications, but that was pretty complicated as well. So some of my container Docker files were pretty gnarly for that. But um, part, part of it is, part of the talk is that Erlang is one of these environments that's sort of considered safe. I, I, I think part of the point of this research was that, uh, sure, it's written in Erlang and there are some things that can't go wrong, but there are still plenty of things that can go wrong. And so um, with the fuzzing, we were sending badly formed network protocol messages and uh, each one of these message brokers was uh, somehow not handling it well in such a way that they consumed all their available memory and got killed. So what were some of the vulnerabilities that Jonathan identified? And what were some of the commonalities among them? I guess if you had to sum it up, you would, you would say it was like improper input validation. So again, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, developers sort of assume that the stuff they're getting is going to conform to what it's supposed to be. And, and if it doesn't, they might not have thought about that and they might not have coded for it. Um, and, and this is a general problem across any language, you know, any software uh, is that you're, you're getting input and you probably can't trust it. And so you need to look at it carefully and make sure you're handling it properly. And if it's, not right, you need to take appropriate action, either 
ignore it or send back an error or, or whatever that you do. Comparably, though, Erlang is one of the memory-safe languages in use. But it can still fail. It, and that's why the safe is in air quotes, is that um, if you think of Java being safe as compared to C, uh, it just means that you can't have a buffer overrun bug. You can't have it fail that way. But there, there are so many ways that software can fail. So there's process crashes, but there's also um, you can go into an endless, endless loop, or you can write corrupted data into your database, or uh, you can lose functionality that should be working, or, or the thing can just um, lock up entirely and it's, it's not available anymore. Some of that was by design. Um, Erlang uh, has a philosophy called fail fast, where uh, it, you sort of expect things to fail. Uh, normally, when you're writing like a network protocol parser in C or some other language, you're trying to think of every possible thing that could happen or go wrong, and you're trying to write code to handle every possible eventuality, and you're always going to miss something. And you know, uh, so Erlang kind of inverts that, where uh, you write code for kind of what you're expecting to happen, and then you expect it to fail otherwise. And then there's a layer of like supervisors that are responsible for seeing when things fail and, and relaunching them and, and all this stuff. And so it, it, for a, a network service, it makes it very robust. With the Internet of Things, it seems that we just keep bringing old protocols like MQTT and old languages like Erlang forward because we find new uses for them. But in the meantime, they really weren't designed for those things. That's especially true in um, industrial control uh, systems uh, where the, the protocols there, they're just all unauthenticated and they're all plain text. And, you know, they were, they, they come from an environment where you think you can trust everything that's on your network. And, and now they're extended to IP networking, and, and then, then there's trouble. When fuzz testing HTTP, it took a really long time to find its first crash. That's HTTP. We use it everywhere. And then there are things like, and I hate to pick on it again, MQTT. I remember in one fuzzing report that I wrote, it seemed like it crashed after a couple minutes of fuzzing, just because it was less mature, less looked at. Uh, yeah, and again, it depends on um, not the protocol so much as the individual software. So, you know, somebody could write a new HTTP server next week and you could fuzz it and knock it over right away because it's it's so new and, and hasn't been around for a while. So some, some of it has to do with how long it's been around. Like if you're going to go fuzz Apache or, or Nginx or, you know, one of the big ones that's old and grizzled, um, it's going to be harder to find stuff. And, and I, I maintain that that's because it has been fuzzed just by being out in the real world for so long. So you, you go and you write a piece of software and you put it out there, it's going to encounter malformed, weird inputs, either by accident or by malice. And so a project like those that's been around for a long time is is likely sort of organically fuzzed and, and has fixed a lot of that stuff. And so it, it's going to be more robust. 
So the vulnerabilities that Jonathan did discover might it have been because Erlang, when it was first used, was spoon-fed the inputs, and now it's open to a lot more inputs, hence the vulnerabilities. No, and I don't think it's anything about Erlang in particular. I think the message brokers that I tested were happened to be all implemented in Erlang because it. I think it is a good choice for like uh, network services that need to be robust. Um, but I think it's more a reflection on uh, nobody had done any network protocol fuzzing on these things before. Uh, so, um, you know, presumably each of these message broker projects has uh, a set of internal tests that they run, um, but most likely those are focused on functionality uh, and, and fuzzing is complementary to that. You know, the, the, the functional testing is great. Let's make sure it works the way it's supposed to work, but you also need the fuzzing, which is let's make sure it doesn't fail when we throw weird stuff at it. So these brokers could have been written in any other language and still had these vulnerabilities that he found. Right, or, or not this particular type of testing. So, you know, one thing we've learned about security testing is that you can't just get one thing and be done. So fuzzing started in the late 1980s, and over the last 30 years, it's continued to develop. However, it's like an in-group. There's a small number of us who actually know about it and actually understand it. So why is that? I interviewed a guy uh, to, to join Synopsys about a year ago, and he came from, uh, well, one of our competitors. I don't remember exactly which one. And, and it, was, it was just such fun for me to, to sit with this guy and talk for an hour about fuzzing because he was excited about it, and I was excited about it. And like you say, there's, there's not that many people in the world who, who really know it at a deep level. So it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, why don't more people? The other thing I'll tell you is uh, I joined Codenomicon in 2011. And I, I didn't really know, I didn't really know anything about fuzzing when I joined. So, um, you know, hats off to Miko for recognizing potential. Um, and so my first week on the job, they flew me out to California and they sat me down and they showed me, talked about fuzzing and showed me Defensix and showed how it broke some things. And I was, uh, I was, uh, what's the word, uh, ecstatic because uh, I thought, oh, we're going to be rich. Everyone needs to do this. <laughs> and I was right about everyone needs to do it, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little complicated, I guess. It's a, it's a little hard. And so, uh, not everybody realizes or, or uh, not everybody's, you know, at that level in the, in the security journey. Uh, so it's a little hard. It, it's, um, I, I don't know quite why, but it, it's sort of over the line. That's been the perception over the years that fuzzing is simply too hard. But there have been advancements that have made it much easier. I, I, guess, I guess people want simpler tools, like they want to, you know, I, I think they want security to be somebody else's problem. And, and I, I think it was in like the first generation of application security. Uh, so, so the first gen was like uh, companies would say, okay, um, well, we've heard about this 
cybersecurity thing and starting to look like it's important. So we'll do what companies do and we'll make a group for it and we'll put somebody in charge of it and they'll be responsible for it. And you can't, you can't do that with security. It's like if you were manufacturing airplanes and you're like, okay, um, you guys figure out how to build the airplane and build it. And then we'll have this other separate group that's responsible for keeping it safe. You just can't do it that way. And software is the same way. So uh, I think I think it's a little harder to use than some other security tools. And so if you're just starting out, you're probably going to pick something else to begin with. Uh, and then once you get to a certain level of maturity, you might pull in buzzing. So given that more people are testing software, I'm still stuck on this idea that where are the other heart bleeds? Where are the other shell shocks? Both of those were found in 2014. And until this year's log for Shell, I'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen more incidents like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's easy to sort of construct doomsday scenarios like, uh, well, you know, like you see in a TV show, like, oh, we got this magic code that shuts down all electronic devices and whatever. And, and some of that reminds me, I'm old enough uh, to remember uh, Y2K and all the like doomsday scenarios for that. Um, and I, I think, and so I will, I would say doomsday scenario is probably not realistic. And, and part of the reason is just that there are so many different kinds of software running everywhere. And if you want to compromise something, it's usually a, a very specific version of a specific piece of software. Uh, so, um, so that's one of the reasons Heartbleed was such a big thing was that uh, so many of the web servers everywhere were running using this software component, Open OpenSSL. And so there was some homogeneity there. And most of the time, that's not true. Um, so for example, the, these three bugs I found were in three different pieces of software. Um, the root cause was essentially similar, like not handling input correctly, but uh, the exact way to trigger that was completely different for each of them. So uh, I just found similar kinds of bugs because I was doing the testing in a similar kind of way. I would think with all the broken code out there, why isn't fuzzing saving the world? Heartbleed was, was really a perfect storm in a lot of different ways. Uh, so one way was uh, it was an open SSL, which was um, an open source component that was used in like two thirds of the world servers at the time. Um, so, so that was, I mean, that was one thing like where the bug was, it was a very important software component. And another thing was just the nature of the bug was that, uh, it would just spew out uh, uh, server memory uh, to, to anyone. You didn't even have to be authenticated. You didn't even have to be uh, um, speaking encrypted stuff in the, in the TLS conversation. So it was really easy to exploit and it was really, really dangerous and it was really, really widespread. And I, I guess, you know, people have done follow-ups since then, like, oh, let's, uh, let's survey the internet and see how much of it is still vulnerable to Heartbleed. And, and that's pretty discouraging. <laughs> you know, clearly there's a lot of stuff out there that nobody ever updates. Um, why hasn't there been something that big? I, you know, I, I think there have been 
plenty of big ones. They just didn't quite reach that scale. Um, and, and also, I think there's a certain amount of fatigue going on, like, oh, you know, another day, another unsecured database or another bug or another compromise or whatever. Um, and, and so I, I think I think it's hard to keep being interested in it because it just keeps happening and it's hard to to keep paying attention. Um, on the other hand, uh, there have been some incidents like, um, I'm trying to remember when Maersk was, it, it might've been that long ago, but, but, you know, colonial pipeline, right? That was a big thing. And lots of hospital systems being hit with ransomware and, and so on. And, and the, usually the roots of those are, uh, are, are user errors, um, like, somebody opens up an email that they shouldn't have or something like that. Um, but sometimes it has to do with, um, with software vulnerabilities. And As mentioned, Jonathan's been looking at software vulnerabilities for more than a decade. I would imagine this is hard not to get too cynical about such things. Yet, Jonathan is not. I don't know. I, I, I try to be optimistic. Like My other title is technical evangelist. And, and so I try to... Um, I keep saying, oh, uh, you know, as an industry, we're realizing that software security is really important. And I, I figure if I keep saying it, maybe it's going to become true. Uh, and, you know, everybody's at a different level in their journey. So, so for some people, they, they get it and they're, they're really building security into the way that they create software and consume it. But um, it's, a, it's a continual struggle. I'd like to thank Jonathan Knudsen for talking about his presentation at Sector 2021. And I'd also like to thank the thousands of people who are currently supporting open source software. It's a hard job. As the software ages, as the software gets used in new and different ways from which it was originally created, it needs to be updated. Fortunately, because of research such as Jonathan's, we're finding these vulnerabilities perhaps before the bad actors do. And again, it's the responsiveness of these administrators of open source software that is keeping our internet safe. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I remain the always fuzzing Robert Vimosi.